We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. One of the things that I liked quite a bit was the, actually the introduction. It's kind of telling, well, it does a good job, like always. So it's, I find it interesting that, especially in this time, the saints were very much threatening the well-being, the lifestyle, the economy of these areas. I sometimes wonder why, why in America, <laughs> such terrible things happen to these religious group of people you know why they were treated so bad why were these things condoned and i think it touches on the introduction where it says the increased settlement of the church members in missouri troubled other settlers who felt threatened by the saints numbers political and economical influence cultural and religious differences and i think that's genuinely a concern that they had you know, and if I were there, I may have had the same concerns. Right. And I find this is so timely because in our day, <laughs> it's almost like the 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 situations have reversed. You know, right. we find it very much very common to be concerned about settlers or immigrants <laughs> that threaten our way of life or can change the political power influences economy cultural and religious differences and so how do we handle that and i think these these verses kind of explain that a little bit two two key things that stuck out to me was one when the lord says that he he supports freedom he wants everyone to be free and that made me think about in the book of mormon when individual when they spoke about religious freedom that they didn't force people to believe in the church right. but they were free to believe in whatever they wanted as long as they kept the laws of the land right and i think similarly the lord says kind of a very similar thing here where he says i think it's he uses the word uh constitutional law of the land yeah it's uh, verses five starting with verse five yeah yeah we can you know, if we jump up to verse four, he says, concerning the laws of the land, I will be that my people should observe and do all things whatsoever I command them. And that the laws of the land, which is the constitutional supporting the principles of freedom and maintaining the rights and privileges that belongs to all mankind. And it's justifiable before me. So one of the big questions in these time period is what do we do about these wrongs that were done to us? Are we justified in, in going back and getting our property? Are we justified in fighting back? Are we, when do we know that we should fight back? And how do we do it in a way that we don't offend the Lord or we don't become as bad as what we're, like we can't 
solve a wrong with another wrong. Like we don't want to become the bad perpetrators now. We don't want to have the greater sin. And I think I think the saints genuinely wanted to be sure that that they were right with the Lord. And I think also there was a sense of like when is it enough? Like how do we protect our property and our family and 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 and, and what do we do? And it's a very difficult thing because it's I mean, we're sitting, we live in a fairly comfortable time where physical dangers of being run at, well, at least for us in the Wasatch Front here, being, having our property confiscated or being run out of town because our religious or political or ideologies are not acceptable in this region. That's kind of hard for us to envision, but these are things that happen continue to happen today to people around the world you know not necessarily saints sometimes it could be saints but it happens all the time you know in human history yeah something that stood out to me was starting in verse 8 and when he's talking about freedom uh, verses 8 through 10 he says i the lord god make you free therefore ye are free indeed and the law also maketh you free nevertheless when the wicked rule the people mourn Wherefore, honest men and wise men should be sought for, sought for diligently, and good men and wise men ye should observe to uphold. Otherwise, whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. What, what stood out to me was that he has made us free. He's given us agency. But he also points out that the law makes us free. That freedom doesn't mean absence from laws. We tend to think that true freedom means no one's telling you what you can and can't do. You can exercise your agency with no restrictions. And it's like, well, uh, it doesn't mean that there's absence of law. That's chaos. Because then everyone can do whatever whim they have without any social contract at all. And he's saying as long as that social contract is constitutional, and he's already kind of gone through how he has divinely inspired certain things to be in the Constitution, you know, certain freedoms to be written into the law. That's why we have to to seek out honest and wise leaders. We have to seek out people who are going to uphold our freedom to choose and to uphold those laws. President Oaks in the last conference gave a talk about the Constitution and spoke at length about its divinity and its inspiration. Um, it's interesting. He also kind of points out in there that not every single phrase is, is an inspired, divinely inspired phrase, but that much of it is. And there's a quote that I wanted to read, and this, this I don't know, stuck out to me because when I heard it in the talk, it stuck out. And then as I was reading this again, when it's talking about uh, when the wicked rule, the people mourn, so we need to seek out honest and wise people to be leaders. Uh, he says in his talk, there are many polit political issues, and no party, platform, or individual candidate can satisfy all personal preferences. Each citizen must therefore decide which issues are most important to him or her at any particular time. Then members should seek inspiration on how to exercise their influence according to their individual priorities. This process will not be easy. It may require changing party support or candidate choices, even from election to election. Such independent actions will sometimes require voters to support candidates or political parties or platforms whose other positions they cannot approve. That is one reason we can encourage our members to refrain from judging one another in political matters. We should never assert that a faithful Latter-day Saint cannot belong to a particular party or vote for a particular candidate. We teach correct principles and leave our members to choose how to prioritize and apply those principles on the issues presented from time to time. 
We also insist and we ask our local leaders to insist that political choices and affiliations not be the subject of teachings or advocacy in any of our church meetings. That stood out to me a lot because when we're talking about being free, we're talking about using agency. He's even saying, don't tie yourself to an ideology that isn't the gospel. So much so that you start to leave some of the principles of the gospel behind in order to promote that ideology. Um, make sure that you temper yourself and that you can take a step back from all of that and look at it for what it's worth and be be willing to follow what your personal priorities are in order to maintain the, the gospel. Uh, even if that means that you have to go against or support a party that maybe you would never have supported before. And I, I find that interesting that he's saying there's no party platform or individual candidate that can satisfy all personal preferences. There's nobody that's going to you're going to say that person matches me perfectly unless it's you. And so you have to say, here are my options. Which one most accurately reflects my priorities? Which one most accurately reflects what I feel will support my uh, endeavors to follow the gospel? And which one will most likely promote laws and policies that will allow me to be a faithful Latter-day Saint? Uh, and that's who you should vote for. Doesn't matter what letter comes after their name. Doesn't matter what color their shirt is. You know, that's what you should be going after. And he says uh, <laughs> in its own sentence and very clearly, it will not. This process will not be easy. If you think it's just as easy as you know voting straight ballot every single time, no questions asked. I can go in and in 10 seconds come back out. Maybe you ought to give it a little more thought. Maybe you ought to reflect a little bit more about each person. Educate yourself. That's why it's so important to educate yourself about elections and what you're voting for and for who and why because it's like you know we are given the freedom to choose we do have a democratic system in many places all over the world so don't squander that don't take it lightly take it seriously take some time and, and really learn are you seeking out honest and wise people that can promote that because remember the, when the wicked rule the people mourn don't put yourself in a position where you're promoting wicked people to be in positions of power yeah, I I agree 100%. I think the key phrase that stuck out for me in that was honest honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently. The diligently part is something that as disciples of Christ, we should understand the intensity of what that word means when we seek after righteousness, when we are seeking answers from our Heavenly Father. There is some preparation work that needs to happen. It doesn't happen organically, you know, naturally, not the natural man, right? We have to use our agency. And one of the things that we've been taught so far, especially with Doctrine and Covenants, Section 89, with the Word of Wisdom, is that there will be conspiring and evil designs. And that in that warning, we were told substances, just what you eat, and drink and smell and, and what you put into your body will be a mechanism by which some people in the last days will abuse that power. You know, we've just gone through the Book of Mormon last year and we saw so much contentions, wars. This is what this person said. This is what they did to our ancestors. Lehi, Nephi stole the birthright from us, you know, to how do we subjugate people in the bondage? to how do we make peace treaties and, and break them and stuff. Going back to Mosiah chapter 29, when 
when King Benjamin's speaking in verse 16, 17, and 18, where he says, and Now I say unto you that because all men are not just, it is not expedient that you should have a king or kings to rule over you. For behold, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed, yea, and what a great destruction. Yea, remember King Noah and his wickedness and his abominations, and also the wickedness and abominations of his people. Behold, that great destruction, that, what great destruction did come upon them. And also because of their iniquities, they were brought into bondage. And I would say that, you know, when Abinadi goes to King Noah, right off the bat, the priests began to defend the king. How dare you besmirch our king? How dare you say these things? Well, look at our towers. Look at our cities. How can our city be just, how do you, you know? So they start arguing in a method that they, they're not listening to the words. And I think that's a great example and warning for us that as we look diligently for wise and honest men and women to lead us, that we look beyond the slogan, beyond the appearance, that we look deep into what the issues, the topics, and how do we get to use our agency to support or not support somebody. And it's very dangerous. This king mentality is the same thing as I will ally myself to one ideology forever. And that's right. it. It's the same mentality as having this king, I think, in, in the... In the in the Book of Mormon, where, or know, even, or even trying to establish infallibility of of a person. No, no leader is going to be perfect, and that's what, kind of what President Oaks is saying. Nobody's going to follow exactly what your personal preferences are and satisfy all of your personal preferences. So if you find yourself saying this person is a mirror image of my personal preferences, just wait because they're probably going to say or do something that doesn't follow that perfectly and you don't want to have said I don't know you don't want to depend on some on another person so much that you cannot see when they're right and when they're wrong yeah and and I think verse 11 also is very impactful in Doctrine Covenants 98 where he says and I give unto you a commandment that you shall forsake all evil and cleave unto all good for you shall live by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God and that means the scriptures and all that, right? But for us specifically, having a living prophet and living apostles in, in the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, whom we also sustain as prophets, seers, and revelators, that we are we cannot live out of the words of their mouth. Uh, out of the, I mean, we cannot. Fulfill this commandment to live by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God, if we ignore the mouthpiece of God, <laughs> which is His prophet. Right. If we if we start playing a very dangerous game of, well, this is what this or my revelation supersedes that of the prophet, or you know, I think we will find that our revelation and the prophet's revelation and the Lord and all of us can be united. That's the whole theme of Doctrine and Covenants to me is unity. When we're united, the powers of heaven are open to us. And when we start dividing, even amongst ourselves, we open the door for apostasy. And this is 
demonstrated in a lot of the examples in these scriptures in the early section, well, in all Doctrine and Covenants, as men and women left the church, especially high-profile members who had angelical, miraculous experience because they started to not live out of every word that came out of them. Not to say that these people are perfect, not that we worship them, but when the prophet speaks and when he gives us commandments, invitations, and warnings, that is also the Lord speaking. Yeah, I think the the challenge is that there's a lot of people out there that have gained a lot of following, a lot of influencer type people that have, you know, you mean the king's man. <laughs> yeah. In the, the soothsayers <laughs> that they have the ability to, you know, do a Facebook live whenever they want. And so they get on and they, they rant about something or they're trying to gain a following for their own personal profit. And that maybe they say a lot of things you agree with. Maybe they say a lot of things that make you feel good. And maybe they say a lot of things that justify or align with what you feel you're already doing. And so you tend to agree with that because, hey, he's supporting what I what I want to believe. And then the prophet may come and say something different. And then we have a choice to make there. Who are we going to follow? The one that feels good, the one that feels right, or the one that chastises with love? The one that is just kind of there to pat our ego that makes us feel like, hey, I'm, yeah, stick it to him. You know, I'm on the right track because this guy believes in me or this woman says what I what I believe and I, I support that. Or are we willing to say, gosh, maybe I'm wrong because the prophet said to do this or do that. And the, the path I'm on doesn't necessarily align with those words. Are we willing to be humble enough to say maybe I'm maybe I'm on the wrong path? I also think that as we understand the restoration of the gospel in continuous revelation, that one, the restoration is not complete. It may never be complete until the millennium. In continuous revelation, the principle that we gain more knowledge and that we're judged based on what we currently know. And that when we gain new knowledge, now we know something different. We need to act different. And we can't go back and say, well, I want to I want to be judged on what I knew when I was 16. Not now that I'm like 35. Now, that seems I, I want to be stuck there. I want to where I don't want to progress anymore. Right. And what the point I'm getting at is sometimes in modern times, it's tempting to play the mom and dad against each other <laughs> scenario with profits. We go and we dig up some of the favorite quotes that align with our point of view that we interpreted to our day from an old prophet, a previous prophet or apostle, to counter whatever the new prophet or the new apostles are saying now. And that is a very dangerous, slippery game and is incorrect because new revelation always supersedes old revelation. We do this and this this should not be a shock. This shouldn't, you know, we should understand that something President Brigham Young might have said or Esther Taft Benson might have said was great for their time and their day. And its principles can be relevant to our time, but for specific things 
President Nelson is whom we follow. Yeah, so in uh, verse 23, he kind of, I think it's verse 23, kind of through 27. It says, Now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and ye bear it patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. If you bear it not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as just, just measure unto you. And again, if your enemy shall smite you a second time and you revile not against your enemy and bear it patiently, your reward shall be an hundredfold. And again, if he shall smite you a third time and ye bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. And these three testimonies shall stand against your enemy if he, if he repent not and shall not be blotted out. This is so contradictory to the world's approach to things of justifying any means. You come into my house, you know, you're going to be met with whatever. And I understand that this the, uh, the circumstances that this revelation is being given is they're being persecuted on an almost daily basis by the people around them who want to get rid of them. They want them to be pushed out of their homes and sent elsewhere. They want them out of Jackson County. They're doing they're tarring and feathering people. They're destroying printing presses. They're they're doing I mean, it's more than just idle threats. There's physical confrontation and violence. There are people who are dying in this process. And yet the Lord is coming and saying something that he kind of, it's an echo of verse 16 that says, and therefore renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to their children. And basically he's saying our first response should not be retaliation. Our first response should not be vengeance. Kind of goes back to the Book of Mormon when we were reading before. Vengeance is mine. You let me handle that. Your first responsibility is to promote peace, proclaim peace, and focus on what the purpose of the gospel is. Heart, turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. Uh, teach the gospel. Live the way you're supposed to live. If someone is offending you, attacking you, doing whatever, don't go after revenge. Revile not against them, it says. That's so hard. That is so hard. The, the knee-jerk reaction is to retaliate. I think about two examples in the Book of Mormon. One, I think about Captain Moroni. Captain Moroni, I look at him and I'm like, that's someone you do not mess with. Mm -mm. <laughs> and then I look at the anti-Nephi-Lehites that had to bury their weapons of war and were just being slaughtered because they would not pick them up again. And it's kind of like two extremes. But then as I think about it, I think Captain Moroni was an appointed official, I would think, was a leader, and was acting and representing the unity of their country, you know. You know, and the anti-Nephi-Lehites were at a point where we've taken so much blood, we cannot do it anymore for the sake of our soul. So our physical body is not as important as our soul, you know, as our eternal outcome. And I look at individuals because often we look at Captain Moroni, the standard of truth. Something's gone wrong. Somebody's doing wrong to us. It's our job and our duty to defend it like Captain Moroni. And we'll get the banner and we'll fly high and we'll, we'll fight. There may be time for that. But one, I don't think Captain Moroni self-appointed himself to that role. And two, if every conflict in your life, you're always having a Captain Moroni response, when, what aspects of your life are you turning the other cheek? 
what aspects of your life are you developing the other characteristics that are to be perfect or whole or balance a complete follower of Christ. It's very easy to rationalize and use a good example like Captain Moroni to rationalize our continuous inability to ever do as the Savior said, turn the other cheek or to leave vengeance to him or to forgive. We have to be careful. I keep going back to this. We cannot play one prophet against another. We cannot. Everything must be balanced. There's a time for everything. There's absolutely a time for you to defend your family. There's absolutely a time for you to take someone's life if it comes to that. What the Lord is saying here, though, as he lays out these instructions for the saints is you better darn well try several different ways before <laughs> it gets to that point. Right. That cannot be the automatic internal reaction to every conflict scenario. And as you do that, you will be blessed. He even states in the scripture that there's a time where you're justified. Yeah. But see, even then, you can still forgive them. Starting you know? in verse 33, he says, And again, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients, that they should not go unto battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save by the Lord commanded them. And if any nation, tongue, or people should proclaim war against them, they should first lift a standard of peace unto that people, nation, or tongue. And if that people did not accept the offering of peace, neither the second nor the third time, they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. Then I, the Lord, would give unto them a commandment and justify them in going out to battle against that nation, tongue, or people. And I, the Lord, would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's until they had avenged themselves on all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. I see that perfectly emulated by Moroni. When he, he'll write these epistles saying, don't do this or we'll destroy you. Don't come at us or we will have to fight back and we will destroy you. And then the Lamanites say, you know what? You stole our birthright. You did this and this and that and we're coming at you. And he's like, I'm warning you again. <laughs> like I have the justification of the Lord behind me. Don't come at us. Don't do this. But it was like, it wasn't, oh, they're, they're showing us opposition. Let's go squash them now before it gets bad. It was, let's tell them, we don't want this. We want peace. And if you if you continue to push for this, we will be forced to fight. And the Lord's saying, you know, if they don't accept your offering of peace, neither the second or the third time, meaning you shouldn't just say, I don't want to fight you once. You should try multiple ways. In the end, yeah, it's justified going and saying, look, we look, Lord, it says you should they should bring these testimonies before the Lord. Look, Lord, we've tried. We've tried to do, go about this the right way, and they are not listening, and they're not going to withhold that. In that case, yeah, it's justified in going and fighting. Yeah, and just throwing this scripture out real quick, because I think it it, it it adds to what you just said. In, in Alma chapter 48, verse 11, where it's describing Moroni, and it says that Moroni was strong and a mighty man. He was a man of perfect understanding, yea, a man who did not delight in bloodshed. A man whose soul did rejoice, did joy in the liberty and the freedom of his country and his brethren from bondage and slavery. Yea, a man whose heart did swell with thanksgiving to, to, to his God for the many privileges and blessings which he bestowed upon his people. A man who did labor exceedingly for the welfare and the safety of his people. Yea, he was a man who was firm in the faith of Christ and he had sworn with an oath to defend his people, his rights, and his country, and his religion, even to the loss of blood. 
And now the Nephites were taught to defend themselves against their enemy, even to the shedding of blood, if it were necessary. Yea, and they were also taught never to give an offense. Yea, and never to raise the sword, except it were against an enemy, except it was to preserve their lives. And this is their faith, that by doing so, God would pr prosper them in the land. And I love Captain Moroni. Awesome. And there's so much to learn, but I think sometimes we're tempted to just grab the parts that are kind of the best and, and use those for our own day. And we don't realize that he was a, ma a, a man of perfect understanding, a man who did not delight in bloodshed. You know, and we see many times he did not delight in bloodshed. And I think before something happens in our community and we just take out our banner and we fly out there and we want to just squash people in the in the name of freedom and righteousness that we really ask ourselves are we a person like captain moroni are we delighting in this are we looking for any opportunity to 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 retaliate are we of perfect understanding are we aligned with the will of the lord have we turned the other cheek it's I think it's important because we would be doing a disservice to Moroni and we'd be doing a disservice to ourselves if our every reaction is met by justified anger or vengeance by cherry picking certain parts of the scriptures and not looking at the whole entirely entirety of the lesson our Heavenly Father wants us to learn. And this section in section 98, I think. Our Savior is giving us a very well-rounded way of understanding the principle of how do you handle wrongs done to you? How do you handle them done? You know, how do you reconcile yourselves? How do you protect yourself? How do you seek vengeance or seek restitution? See, there's two parts of this, that, that there's blessings upon your children and their children, and there's also kind of cursings upon children and children. And that's dependent on whether you're doing it the right way or you're doing it the wrong way. Because we almost, we look at this section and it's easier to, easy to see and put ourselves in the shoes of the saints as the wrongs done to us. But inversely, we can also see that we could put ourselves in the shoes of the aggressor doing wrongs to others. And he says in here, this is for all people. He right. wants all people. This isn't just for, you know, the saints. You know, this is for all people. As wrongs are done unto you, if you continue to meet a wrong with the wrong, it's going to affect your children and their children. You're going to create a bad habit, bad bad habits that you pass on. You know. Yeah, and it's not it's not that the children are being punished for the sins of their parents. What it is is you've created a culture of vengeance. You've created a culture of of retaliation. And when your kids see that, I mean, you saw it with the Lamanites. They had a culture of vengeance and retaliation. They all they passed it down for hundreds of generations from <laughs> Laman and Lemuel. They were still drumming up Laman and Lemuel excuses by the time we hit Moroni. And it was because all these generations of trying to fix a problem with aggression, fix a problem with vengeance, uh, never, never led to a reconciliation, never led to a return to what they what the Lord really wanted them to do. There's a quote by Elder Hales in the, in the Sunday School Manual. It says, some people mistakenly think responses such as silence, meekness, forgiveness, and bearing humble testimony are passive or weak. But to love our enemies, bless them that curse us, do good to them that hate us, 
and pray for them which despitefully use us and persecute us takes faith, strength, and most of all, Christian courage. When we do not retaliate, when we turn the other cheek and resist feelings of anger, we too stand with the Savior. We show forth his love, which is the only power that can subdue the adversary and answer our accusers without accusing them in return. That is not weakness. That is Christian courage. You hear that and it's like, how many times is it, is the world trying to tell you that the only appropriate response is to, you know, shut that person down or destroy them, whether it's physically or, you know, metaphorically, remove them from the conversation. And the, the Lord is saying, that's not how I work. That's not how I want you to, to, to behave. Yes, there comes a point when it's recurring, when it becomes incessant, that you do need to take action in, in a more aggressive way. But first, you better be turning that other cheek. You better be standing with love and compassion first and under trying to understand where these people are coming from. I don't know. It just seems like right now the world is a very tumultuous place, very conflict-oriented place. Social media is a, a den of, of burns and you know, trying to make fun of people or belittle people or demean people. And I, I just don't see that as something that the Lord is super proud of, even if it's under, you know, trying to promote the right thoughts or the right whatever done in that way. It's it's not the right way to do things. Yeah. And, and like you said, I think especially that quote kind of touched upon the fact that we we have begun to value strength. By all of these superficial things that are not strength. They're not showing strength of character and they're not showing control. And we look at the Savior. The Savior had all strength, all power. We're told that with a thought, he could have just obliterated his captors, right? Or whatever. Legions of angels were ready, you know, when Satan tempts him, cast yourself down, you know, if you're the son of man, right? Right. And and it's like the show of force, it's almost like casting pearls to swine if it's not done correctly. The greatest strength is in the battles that are never fought, you know? If if you are pinball that's just getting tossed around by posts and headlines and you're just out there pinging, hitting it, like you're somehow you're defending something you not you're not seeing that you're being manipulated and you're sacrificing the growth that can happen and the peace when the savior says peace i give unto you that part of that peace is how are we going to live in these last days of tumultuous time and have the savior's peace with us and not be afraid well a lot of that has to do with confidence. A lot of that has to do with whom we put our trust, whether we build our house upon the rock, the Savior, or we build our house upon the sand. That also has to do with what radio channels we're tuned into our mind and into our thoughts. Are we tuned into every fearful thing out there and everything that's built to get reactions? Or are we tuned into the Savior and every word that comes out of his mouth and the prophets? One of my favorite things about General Conference is the amount of optimism <laughs> that our leaders convey 
about what a wonderful time to be alive. What a great opportunity to share the gospel in this method or in this way or these blessings. And they're not burying their heads in the sand. They're probably some of the most well-known, well-versed people on the evils of the world. But yet, this commandment and the blessing of Christ telling his leaders and us that his peace can be with us. Meaning, not every fight, everything do we have to chase. And if that's our initial reaction for everything is, let me get my standard of liberty and go pick it and go yell and go scream and reply to everything, we should really be checking ourselves. And if you're, I see it in some of those influencer types, those people that are trying to gain a following. It's the opposite approach that the prophet has. The prophet is saying, hey, yeah, there's some crazy stuff going on, but what an incredible time to be alive. Look at all these things that are happening. Look at all these blessings that are occurring and look at what inf- what positive influence we can have on the world around us. Meanwhile, these other people who are not acting under direction of the spirit, who are trying to do things for their own personal gain or profit or whatever, are coming out saying, can you believe this? Can you believe that? Can you? This is so terrible. These people are trying to destroy us. You know, it's like the exact opposite message. It's this message of we're under impending doom all the time. And that's how they're trying to motivate people through fear and threats and all of that. Instead of by saying we have the great potential to make a positive influence. We have a great opportunity in this life to do good things. Instead, it's we got to we got to take up and, and show up to this place and, you know, pick at this person's house and whatever. And it's like that's not that's not what the prophet is saying. And if you're following that, if you know this, if you're more swayed by someone telling you all the bad things that are happening and all the ways that you telling you how you should feel so aggravated by it, and you're not listening to a prophet who's telling you, hey, we're on the right track. We need if we if we follow the gospel and we do what's right, we have a positive influence on the world. You're, you're kind of backwards. The perfect example of this is when Jesus walks on the water. In Matthew, let me see, Matthew chapter 14, uh, verse 25, when they see him, right away they say, it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. <laughs> verse 27, but Jesus immediately said unto them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And, and then Peter said, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. And he says, come. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked onto the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind... He was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And I feel like that's the perfect message for our time. Because the Savior is saying, look at all these great things and miraculous things you'll be able to do. Look at all these blessings, all these temples, all these things. Keep your eye on me. You can do it. You can walk on water. You can do what you th- what feels completely impossible. What the world tells you cannot happen. You cannot have a family that's happy. You cannot be together forever. You cannot, you know, not have fear. You know, you all of these things. And he says, come. And we do it. But then he says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. How many of us are looking at the winds and the things and sinking, 
where when we're doing the Lord's work, we can look at those things and realize how great is the Lord that everything's still functioning. Like, I, that's what I think about missionaries. How great is the Lord that, <laughs> you know, I was a dumb 19-year-old and somehow <laughs> I did some sort of good, right? Yeah. Somehow something came out that was useful, right? <laughs> you know, that, or we can look at it the other way where we're like, I don't think I can do it. I don't know enough. And you start to think. So section 99 is pretty short, um, but it's about John Murdoch. And he's called to uh, serve a, a mission, basically. And there, I got more from the Joseph Smith's Revelations book when it kind of gives a background about the section um, than I got necessarily from just the verses in the section. But I just wanted to read this really fast because it's pretty interesting. I didn't know much about John Murdoch before. It says, in early 1831, Murdoch decided to devote himself full-time to the ministry and moved his family in with another family so that he could do so. In June 1831, a revelation instructed him to go to Missouri, preaching the word by the way. Murdoch followed this instruction and departed from Missouri, despite the recent death of his wife, Julia Clapp Murdoch, during childbirth, which left him with five children under the age of seven, including two, including newborn twins. Before leaving, he arranged for several individuals to watch over his older children. Joseph Smith and Emma Smith adopted the twins. For the rest of 1831 and the first half of 1832, Murdoch preached in the Michigan Territory, Indiana, Missouri, and Ohio, among other places. When he returned to Hiram, Ohio in June of 1832, suffering from the effects of a months-long bout with ague, he found that one of the twins had died in March. In addition, those whom, with whom he had left his three older children demanded payment for their help. And then later it says, this August 20, this 29th of August, 1832 revelation instructed him to resume his preaching, this time in the Western United States, in the Eastern United States. The revelation also told him to continue preaching until his death unless he desired to go to Zion after a few years. Perhaps because of the problems Murdoch experienced with his children's caretakers, the revelation told him not to leave until he had made arrangements to send his children to Bishop Edward Partridge in Zion. This revelation's call for Murdoch to continue as a missionary until his death, notwithstanding his family responsibilities, was an unusual sacrifice apparently not expected of other early members, early church members, and may have resulted from his earlier determination to devote himself full-time to the ministry. Just kind of knowing a little bit more about the background of this guy, that he, he dedicated himself to being a missionary and felt that he had been called to do so and then when when this was reiterated in a calling like this in in section 99 basically saying i want you to do this for the rest of your life unless at some point you want to go to zion that's fine but please dedicate as much time as you can to preaching the gospel it's just a kind of a fascinating thing because yeah we had long missions back then years and years and years long missions back then but i don't know of anybody else who it was like hey go ahead and do this for the rest of your life you know, it's kind of kind of interesting. He must have been a very effective missionary. Yeah, I I think that's really cool. I think also like it's incredible how Revelation is so interesting that there's room for everything to occur. You know what I mean? Like earlier when I was younger, I had very dogmatic views on my religious beliefs, you know. Like it has to be this way because it's always been this way. Like, like these little, and then especially on my mission, like I started to realize how much revelation means you make a plan and you make a backup plan 
and you are open to the fact that the Lord may change all of that. And this is one of those examples, you know, that here's a very unique revelation in a really unique way, meaning very different than other missionaries that have gotten their mission calls, you know. Yeah, and I think in the in the next section, in section 100, there's a verse in there that I think every missionary knows. It's shared with every missionary group, whether it's a district zone, whatever meeting. Um, in verse 5 and 6, therefore, verily I say unto you, lift up your voices unto this people. Speak the thoughts that I shall put into your hearts, and ye shall not be confounded before men. For it shall be given you in the very hour, yea, in the very moment, what ye shall say. That was something that we talked about a lot as missionaries. And I think, unfortunately, too often we restrict those types of thoughts to missionary work and to missionaries. We don't often think of it as the regular everyday member being in the same boat, right? You still have that promise to speak the thoughts that he will put into our hearts and that we won't be confounded before men. And that sometimes when you need something to say, it just takes opening your mouth and and understanding that he'll he'll inspire you. He'll give you the revelation that you need in that moment. And it comes down to just doing it, being willing to just try, to just do it. Don't wait around till you know more. Don't try to become an expert before you can speak on things. Just say, I if you're if you're trying your best and if you're filling your mind with the right things, I say this to people all the time. Um, my biggest testimony of Come Follow Me is the fact that I've had to study it every single day, every single week. Maybe not every day, but every week for the last two and a half years, year, two years. I've been doing that, and now things come to mind from Come Follow Me, from the scriptures, from the gospel, more readily than ever before. Maybe since my mission, where it was like a constant thing. And so if you fill your mind with good things, that's what's going to come to your mind when you need it. That's what's going to be your first recall. And section 101, and this is a direct response um, in the heading, revelation given to Joseph Smith, the prophet. At this time, the saints who had gathered in Missouri were suffering great persecution. Mobs had driven them from their homes in Jackson County. And some of the saints had tried to establish themselves in Van Buren, Lafayette, and Ray counties. But persecution followed them. The main body of the saints was at that time in Clay County, Missouri. Threats of death against individuals of the church were many. The saints in Jackson County had lost household furniture, clothing, livestock, and other personal property. And many of their crops had been destroyed. They're facing some of the greatest persecution imaginable at this time. And they kind of were waiting for a while uh, to get a revelation on how they should respond and how they should act. The first most comforting thing, I think, is in verse 2 and 3. And I, the Lord, have suffered the affliction to come upon them, wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. Yet I will own them, and they shall be mine in that day when I shall come and make up my jewels. How many things are like this? How many times do we have to endure trials of our own making? Things that we're doing, and then we're complaining about having this trial, and it's like, yeah, this trial is a direct consequence of decisions you made. I can't I can't just remove a trial when you're making poor decisions. But the Lord is still there to help us, and he wants us to acknowledge our transgression, fix it, and move forward. That's always the thing, is it's like, just because you've done something wrong and you're having to suffer consequences, doesn't mean you're on your own. He's still there. That's the incredible mercy. He's still there to say, hey, I'm going to help you endure this and learn from it because you got yourself into this mess. And a lot of these things that are happening are because you're not really following what I've been asking you to follow. And then in verse nine, verily I say unto you, notwithstanding their sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards them. 
I will not utterly cast them off. In the day of wrath, I will remember mercy. That type of stuff really gives me encouragement because uh, even when I make a mistake and I have to pay consequences for it, I know that I'm not on my own with that. Yeah, this reminded me a lot of Second Nephi, uh, Alma chapter 42, where Helaman is teaching his son about um, rest, the difference between restoration and restoration, restoration and restitution, yeah. um, that things will be restored to their natural state, and that you can't take something that's dirty and make it clean, you know, you know. But uh, when he goes through and he says, you know, those that have been scattered will be gathered. Those that have mourned will be comforted. Um, all those that have given their lives for my name shall be crowned. Therefore, let your hearts be comforted. <clears throat> they that remain and are pure in heart shall return and come to their inheritance. It's very much the Lord's letting us know that nothing gets past them. He knows what's happening. He knows when wrongs. And that should make it easier when you know that like we just spoke previously, when you have turned the other cheek, the Lord will take care of things. He doesn't say turn the other cheek so I, so justice never happens upon the wrongdoer. <laughs> uh, it will. Everyone will have to answer. But in this scenario, this is more for your benefit than forgiving others and for, for staying faithful. He's continuously telling the church that, we need to gather and stand in holy places and that in the temple is where we receive further revelation i think the other thing that's in here is this kind of parable of the watchman which i found really interesting where it's like they were supposed to plant olive trees and they're planting them around a tower a watchtower and a hedge roundabout you know, they, they put this, you know, watchman on top of the tower and the, the olive trees can be protected and then they can kind of see when there are enemies coming to steal the fruit and to destroy the, the trees. And at first, there it says uh, in verse 50, while they were at variance one with another, they became very slothful and they hearkened not unto the commandments of their Lord. And the enemy came by night and broke down the hedge and the servants of the noblemen arose and were affrighted and fled and the enemy destroyed their works and broke down their olive trees. And he basically, you know, tells them in 53, ought ye not to have done even as I commanded you? And after ye had planted the vineyard and built the hedge around about and set the watchman on the walls thereof, built the tower also and set a watchman upon the tower and watched for my vineyard and have not fallen asleep, lest the enemy should come upon you. And behold, the watchman upon the tower would have seen the enemy while he was yet afar off. And then you could have made ready and kept the enemy from breaking down the hedge thereof and saved my vineyard from the hands of the destroyer. I look at this and I'm thinking, what does this mean to these saints? Why is this parable being told to these saints? And I think it's the overall message for them and for us. Don't get a false sense of security. Don't don't start to assume that, you know, we're too big to fail or we're too strong in the gospel to ever have doubts or that, you know, on an individual level, my testimony is too strong. I will never fall. I will never falter. Um, we need to be acting preemptively, not just reactively. We need to start. The reason why he wanted the watchman on the tower was to be able to see the enemy before they arrived. If you're preparing yourself spiritually, if you're preparing your ward spiritually, if you're preparing your country spiritually, 
we'll be able to see the enemy and the temptation and whatever evil destruction come before it arrives and be able to make preparations instead of just reacting after it happens, right? Obviously, they waited until they were already there breaking down the hedge and then they got scared and ran away. And it's like, at that point, you're, you're useless. You've lost any ability to protect yourself. You're just reacting at that point. You're, you're fight or flight. And neither one of those is a good response when you could have preemptively prevented all of this. Yeah, it's kind of like, I'm trying to use an analogy, like a boa constrictor. <laughs> this is the worst analogy. You see it coming, you just get away. Wait till it wraps itself around your leg. It's going to take a lot more energy to get out of there, right? And and I think that kind of leads to, <laughs> that was the worst analogy, you delete that. So. I don't think it was. I think it's good because they're not particularly fast and they don't strike like that and kill you. It's a slow process. And it's one of those things where if you just saw it coming and got out of the way or or removed yourself, uh, it wouldn't be an issue. But if you stand there and say, oh, I'm fine. Oh, I can push it away. Oh, it's only on my leg. Oh, it's only wrapped around my chest. I can still get out. You know, yeah, it, <laughs> pretty well, soon it, you're not. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a good thing to to learn to avoid things when the issues or even repentance, for that matter, when the issue is small or new uh once things begin to settle then things compound and and it becomes an issue it's kind of like the poison by degrees in the book of Mormon, you know oh i thought this was interesting verse 81 where it says now unto what shall i liken the children of zion i will liken them unto the parable of a woman and the unjust judge for men ought always to pray and not to faint, which saith, There was a city, there was in a city a judge who feared not God, neither regarded man. So you get a sense that he was not a good judge and didn't treat people nicely, right? right. There was a widow in that city, and she came out, she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterwards he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard men, yet because this widow troubled me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. <laughs> Thus I will liken the children of Zion. Let them importune at the feet of the judge, and if he heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the government. And if he the governor heed them not, let them importune at the feet of the president. So he's saying, even if you have a system where they're not following my rules, they don't follow the same principles that you live by and they don't care for your well-being they don't want to treat you right continue to petition and maybe by the fact that you've bothered them so much they'll give you attention you know they'll solve the problem which is interesting but it's literally what happened the saints were ignored there were many false promises of some governors made were carried out. The saints were ignored. They were ignored to the point where, actually, I don't think they got, they, they might have gotten some alleviation sometimes, but not very much. But I, I think the Lord, it's he's kind of like told them in essence what's going to happen. <laughs> They're really not going to listen. But try, you know, if, if they won't listen because you're bringing forth righteous laws and the laws of God, and, and they are people of conscience 
that's one way. Okay, if they don't listen because you're just a fellow citizen and they care for others, that's one way. Or you can try to get them to listen because you keep pestering them. And I think it kind of goes on. It, it kind of harkens back to a couple of sections ago. In verse 93, I think is really the key to this. And he's not saying once you've gone to the judge and the governor and the president, then everything will come into place. He's saying, what I have said unto you must needs be that all men may be left without excuse. <laughs> As if, like, don't go straight to the president because he'll be like, what did your governor say? What did the local judge say? You know, oh, well, we thought we'd come straight to you. Nah, that's not how this works. There's an excuse. Remove all possibility that someone's going to be like, well, you didn't follow the proper process. No, follow the process. Remove all excuse and show we've gone to him. He said nothing. We've gone to him. He said nothing. We've gone to him. He said nothing. That wise men and rulers may hear and know that which they have never considered. Maybe they're not even aware of what's going on. And then in number 95, that I may proceed to bring it past my act, my strange act, and perform my work, my strange work, that men may discern between the righteous and the wicked, saith your God. I just think it's interesting that he's saying, I know this probably won't work. But I want you to do it so that you remove all excuses, so that you're beyond reproach when it comes down to it. You can show we're following the laws. We're doing everything above board. We're not trying to, you know, get some sort of favor from someone un unjustly. Like, we are going through the proper process. And maybe enlighten people that they didn't even consider that you were being persecuted or that uh, whatever is happening. I think it's interesting that he would ask them to do that, even knowing that it wasn't going to generate any extreme sympathy and they weren't going to be necessarily protected in where they were. Uh, the persecution was still going to continue, but make it so that no one can have any, you're beyond reproach. No one can be like, well, if only you'd have done this. No, we did that. We've done everything. Yeah, I think that also goes for sharing the gospel trying to help others and trying to be a missionary is sometimes you have to approach it through different angles. So there's also no excuse that, hey, you weren't warned. I kind of think uh, the proclamations that the church does are kind of like that, the proclamation of the family. And the most recent one was, I think, the proclamation of the restoration. And they do send those out to local leaders, local and international leaders. Uh, you know, they do send them out to their offices to let them know. So also, there's kind of no excuse, you know, in, in some aspect of that, right? No one will be able to say, oh, I didn't know. No one will be able to use that as an excuse. I didn't know. I, I hadn't heard that before. I didn't know this was what the prophet had said. No, it's very, it's very clear that that's what's being said. There's no excuse to not know. Let us be awake and not be wary of well-doing. For we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.